0: And I'm joined by my co-host and co-conspirator in all things strategery, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arleigh Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, always good to see you. Eric, always uh, good to be with you. I'm, uh, I'm particularly excited today,
1: not only because we have two old friends of ours, but um, two people who've written a book, and they still seem to be on speaking terms with each other,
2: which, which
1: is a somewhat unusual achievement. And so I, uh, I honor them for that. But why don't you get
0: us launched, Eric? You ought to know about that since you've co-authored books with people, but not me, I would point out. So That's why we're, still, we're still on still, speaking terms. I, I suppose that's right. Our guest today, Are uh, General David Petraeus and uh, Andrew Roberts, who's making a return appearance on on Shield of the Republic, Uh, they are together the authors of Conflict: The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine, published recently by Harper. Um, General Petraeus really needs no introduction, but you know, I, I convention requires me to say that. Uh, he has been the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. He was the uh, commander of U.S. forces in Iraq, the commander of the international security uh, forces in Afghanistan and the combatant commander of uh, Central Command uh, and a former colleague uh, whom I highly value for his incredible work uh, in Iraq in 2007 and uh, eight. Um, uh Dave is uh, now a, a lecturer, I think, uh, at Yale University, one of my two alma maters, and uh, also is uh, the chair of KKR's Global Institute. Uh, Andrew Roberts is a historian and biographer. And if we tried to list all of the books Andrew has written, we would we would take up the entire podcast. Uh, but he was most recently with us talking about his biography of King George the Third. But he's written a number of other uh, books, uh, including a number of military histories and a number of books on leadership in warfare. Let me start with you, Andrew. What brought the two of you together and prompted you to write this book?
2: Well, we'd known each other for uh, several years, but it was the invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia that uh, prompted me to call David and, uh, and put the idea to him that there are going to be lots of books about uh, the Russo-Ukrainian war in its political and geopolitical aspects, but why didn't we write one about the military history, uh, the military, solely the military aspects of it, and put it in its, in its historical context post-1945? And um, David jumped at the idea, uh, which was wonderful, and so we got Harper Collins to, um, to um, commission it, and of course, they asked how we were going to divvy up the chapters, and I said, "Well, David's going to write about all the countries he's invaded," and, uh, <laughs> and he, will, uh. he also he also uh, wrote about Vietnam. Of course, a very important chapter as well, and um, and I was going to do the rest. And then what we did was to send lots of uh, of um, these chapters backwards and forwards to one another until we were we were ready. And um, and unlike Eliot's. Uh, experience in this actually um, co-authoring which i'd never done before this is the first book of my 20 books that i co-authored actually turned out to be a profoundly intellectually stimulating and and good-natured and uh, friendly experience so um uh, so yes it was uh, it was it was a wonderful thing to have had the opportunity to to do with david
3: uh, Eric, let me just add that uh, Andrew and I had done a lot of things together in the past. Uh, I think we did five sessions alone where I interviewed him on his Churchill book and then various aspects of the Churchill book, uh, Churchill and the military, Churchill and the intelligence community, Churchill and the royal family, Churchill and his friends, uh, and uh, also the George the Third book, of course, about the last king of America. Uh, and again, back and forth, we'd interview each other on various topics. I'd even done the Uh, Cliveden Literary Festival, interviewed by him uh, twice before, even though I hadn't written a book. So we had this wonderful collaboration and a great relationship. Uh, And when he offered this, I'd really been looking for an opportunity to write about Iraq and Afghanistan, which, as you noted, the two wars that I commanded at the height of each, but without doing it in a tell-all, memoir kind of way. And I did want to revisit Vietnam, which was the subject of my Ph.D. dissertation at Princeton, But at 10 years after the end of the war, and we were now several decades later, and I wanted to go through the scholarship that had come out since then, the Declassified Papers, uh, and dig more into that and from a somewhat different perspective. So um, it was really a wonderful opportunity, um, and it was great working with Andrew back and forth the entire way. Uh, And frankly, we had some great editors at HarperCollins, the head editor, of course, who said, um, you know, uh, you have to write. The Iraq and Afghanistan chapters in the first person. This third person that you submitted just doesn't work, and he was absolutely right. And so we recrafted it that way, put an asterisk at the top that said General Petraeus drafted this, um, and it it was. Uh, I also read those two chapters for the audible version.
1: So let me. Uh, I, by the way, I should uh, stipulate that uh, I mean, the one book that I really um, ended up co-authoring was with uh, John Gooch, who's a, a wonderful. British military historian, and we've remained very good friends since. So uh, I I don't want anybody to think that uh, these things always have to end in uh, acrimony, although I I know of others who've, you know, (laughs) really ended up at Daggers (laughs) drawn. So so many interesting things to talk about in this book. Um, Let me just begin. I want to read from page two. You say this is not a book about politics and why wars break out. Rather, it's about what happens on battlefields once they have. And um, and that's you know I think you're you're faithful to that. I would like to press you a little bit on that, though, because I'm trying to figure out how to formulate this exactly. But I mean, it seems to me that the that the the causes of a war, sort of the deeper political origins, um, do affect the way war is waged. And I I, I mean, let me just give. Two examples. The book came out before the Israel-Gaza War, uh, but it's certainly triggered by Russia-Ukraine. In both cases, the way the war was launched and the nature of the regimes that launched it, Putin's Russia, uh, Hamas in Gaza, had a lot to do with how it was waged. Particularly, I'm thinking of the quite calculated brutality directed against civilians. So I was wondering if you could comment on that. Is it really possible to separate out what happens on the battlefield from the, the natures of the countries that are waging the
3: wars and the reasons that they're, they're waging them? Not entirely. Uh, you're exactly right. And we actually do discuss, for example, Putin's grievance-filled, revanchist and revisionist uh, view of history, uh, his denial of Ukraine's right to exist, et cetera. Um, And because that is an element of this, Uh, of course, what we really focus on in every one of these conflicts is the quality of the strategic leadership. Uh, And the most senior strategic leadership, of course, is the commander in chief. It's the president of the United States, prime minister of the UK, President Putin. Uh, But then what we really focus on, of course, is how the then strategic military commander, the overall theater commander, uh, carries out his duties? Uh, Does he get the big ideas right, the strategy? Does he communicate it effectively through the breadth and depth of the organization? Does he oversee the implementation of the big ideas, providing example, energy, inspiration, getting great people, allowing those not measure enough to move on, the metrics, how the leader spends his time? Uh, And then uh, is there a process uh, by which the big ideas are refined as the context changes, et cetera, et cetera? But again part of that context clearly uh is in a sense the mindset uh the predisposition um, of the most senior leader who makes the fundamental decision who rolls the iron dice uh, as the term is is described for the decision to go to war Uh, and that does have an influence there's no question about it
1: if i could just follow up a bit i mean you're Understandably, what you just said is largely, not entirely, from the perspective of Western leaders um, fighting, and particularly of the liberal democracies, but not just the liberal democracies, fighting a more or less conventional war. Can you can you apply that kind of um, template to how you analyze the success of somebody like Yahya Sinwar in uh, Gaza? Or, or the Iranian regime, which is fighting a very, very different kind of war than the kind of war that uh, Putin has fought in uh, Russia, or that you know, for that matter, you fought, Dave, in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, in some measure. How how would they stack up in that analysis?
3: Well, um, again, you obviously have to understand the enemy uh, strategic military leader um, in his. Disposition Um, is there a willingness to take casualties that might be greater than, for example, ours? Uh, That's often the case. Uh, If you think about why was the strategy in Vietnam flawed, uh, one of the reasons it was flawed uh, was because it was based on a proposition of attrition, uh, search and destroy. That you know we kill ten of them for every one of us, but they could replace, replace their casualties, and because they saw this as a A nationalist uh, war of independence, if you will, Um, yes, communist leaders, uh, which were, of course, the source of our concern, uh, but because of their approach, uh, again, you couldn't win that kind of war. Uh, And we didn't get the big ideas right in Vietnam, we argue, uh, in the book until mid-1968, when General Abrams finally took over from General Westmoreland. And for the first time, you had a commander who understood that the priority should be the security of the people. Uh, And that had to be carried out in a different way. In fact, we had a template for that. The Marines had been doing that with considerable success, uh, but the Army units were thrashing around in the jungle with uh, quite ephemeral effects. Uh, And again, it turned out we could not uh, win a war of attrition uh, with them, despite the commitment of well over 500,000 troops. So, yes, you've got to understand the perspective. Uh, Look, the individuals we fought in, Iraq is, in Afghanistan, uh, as you recall, Elliot, employed one of the most pernicious uh, techniques in the battlefield imaginable. They would be willing to blow themselves up to take us with them. That changes the dynamics uh, of how you fight. It means that our soldiers have to keep everyone at beyond arm's length. And if those individuals don't obey the instructions are given, if the vehicles don't do that as well, you might have to actually use force. Because you have to have an assumption, especially if the intelligence uh, is there, uh, that this person could be a suicide bomber. So, yeah, without question, that all of this, I think, is absolutely true. And we do try to understand the perspective, obviously, of the, the enemy, if you will. This is written from the Western perspective, after all. But again, the great strategic leader of both the French experience in Indochina and the U.S. war in Vietnam uh, was neither French nor American, uh, it was General Job, Um And that's how we identify.
2: I think it's also worth um, pointing out that, of course, in democracies, you have to bring the people along with you, the domestic audience along with you. And so it um, uh, it's much more difficult. You can't really uh, go out deliberately to uh, fight a war that ignores the Geneva Conventions in the way that uh, Russia has in Ukraine. And obviously, Hamas has done as well. Um the classic example that we go into in uh, in some detail is algeria in 1954 where the french uh, essentially didn't so much resort to uh torture but actually used it as a essential part of the of the war winning um, attempted war winning um uh, technique so actually what happens there is you get the domestic uh, political opinion in this case in in france uh, turning against the war and the very um, nature of the of the war is one of the things that uh, um, means that it can no longer be fought by the democracy. So, so Elliot, absolutely, you are right. The the, the, the nature of the regime that uh, you're fighting is inherent in the kind of war that you're able to um, fight.
1: If I could ask just one follow-up and then uh, throw it back to Eric. Um, could the two of you talk a bit then about the nature of the advantages or the disadvantages that uh, the kinds of regimes that we're up against, uh, a Russia, a, an, a, um, Iran, a uh, Hamas, possibly a China, which all, all of which I think it's fair to say simply don't have the compunctions that uh, the liberal democracies have. Um, It, it undoubtedly gives them certain advantages. It probably places them at certain disadvantages. But could you, the two of you discuss that? Because I think the, you know, one of the things that's um, important about the book is that it potentially looks forward to, you know, or forces its readers to look forward to say, how is war, which is, as Clausewitz says, a chameleon uh, likely to evolve into the future
2: yes we we have one chapter the final chapter in fact chapter 10 entitled the future of war which looks at um sensors and cyber and robotics ai drones um, space and all these various areas which are obviously going to be tremendously important in future um conflict and um and that also fits into the um the point that you made earlier because uh In a sense, it's your own ethical um, uh, standpoint which uh, will decide whether or not you go to the nth degree to use these new weapons. Obviously, nuclear weapons haven't been used since uh, Nagasaki, but they're going to be all sorts of new and modern, um, especially in the area of AI and robotics, weapons that uh, are going to require an ethical standpoint um, from the point of view of the people who are going to be using them because the human in the loop um, as he is at the present um, is not going to be uh, in the loop very much longer and uh, instead it's going to be the human on the loop who creates the algorithms um, necessary to uh, to have the overall sort of game plan and how the fight is going to be taken. So all in all um, Yes, these uh, these big ethical considerations where democracies are, in a sense, um, sort of uh, hamstrung compared to dictatorships um, are, um, are something that we do examine in the final chapter of the book.
3: We also, uh, throughout the book as well, Elliot, keep in mind, again, this is post-1945, therefore post-Geneva Convention and the adoption of the law of land warfare. Um, and... I reflect on this at times because you hear right now for example people say oh they were so barbaric to us what's why aren't we so barbaric to them why don't we give uh, in kind and of course it's because we are committed to certain standards that evolved from a war that saw incredible barbarity including in some many cases from our own side i mean the the destruction of some of germans uh, germany's cities and so forth was really quite substantial um And the reality is that if you take actions that violate the Geneva Convention, the laws of land warfare, it is going to have uh, there will be blowback. There will be a penalty for that. Um, and one of the reasons that I uh, stood against enhanced interrogation techniques uh, was not just that they didn't work, although I'm, I have a firm conviction that they don't they're not the best way to get... Uh, good information uh, from a detainee, but it's also that even if you don't believe that they don't work, if you think you actually can get something from them using those, uh, you're going to pay a penalty for that, a price for that in the court of world opinion that is going to be greater uh, than what the value that you get from someone uh, using those techniques. And this is true in many other ways as well. And yes, dictators, autocrats, Andrew and I Uh, went to Bucha, for example, outside uh, Kiev and saw the atrocities visited on the people there by the Russian soldiers. In fact, we wrote a piece around the publication of the book that actually uh, described Russian military culture as embracing war crimes rather than trying to uh, avoid them. But uh, I just think it, it is a reality, but it's a reality I agree with. I think there should be norms. I think we have adopted them, and I do believe it's very important that we observe them, noting that, sure, autocrats, kleptocrats, dictators, uh, whatever, can uh, worry less about casualties. Uh, Putin seems very unconcerned about the horrific losses that his forces are taking on the battlefield in Ukraine. Uh, Again, many of the forces that we fought over the years uh, promoted, employed suicide bombing, uh, and really quite... uh, uh, slightly crazed tactics at times that were going to lead to very high casualties for their forces. But that's not an argument that's sufficient in my mind to say that that's what we ought to do as well. And at the end of the day, you have to have, I think, a bit of faith in the strength of democracy over uh, the strengths, if you will, of autocracy which, again, can have more continuity. They can make decisions more rapidly. You don't have to wrangle through Congress. You don't have congressional delegations and oversight and all the other uh, challenges that come with uh, commanding in a democracy. But I think there are huge strengths there as well.
2: Another important aspect of warfare where totalitarian regimes have a have a, a jump on democracies essentially is that um, they can launch surprise attacks much more um, easily. When you go through the list of, um, of surprise attacks that have taken place uh, since uh, Pearl Harbor with um, the attack on uh, on Korea, uh, the Six Day War, the Yom Kippur War, the Falklands War, uh, 9-11, uh, this, uh, this uh, latest Hamas uh, atrocity, all of them, apart from um, the Six Day War, were started by totalitarian or authoritarian regimes against uh, democracies, and uh, the Six Day War is the only one that isn't. So that does give um, give totalitarian regimes a bit of a advantage, but it's only an advantage right at the beginning because what it tends to do uh, is to um, is to heat up the uh, response. From the um, uh, from the people who've uh, suffered the surprise attack, there's that that wonderful line of Paul Wolfowitz uh, that uh, surprise attacks happen so often in history that the surprising thing is that we're still surprised by them.
1: Uh, you know, I'm going to pass it off to to Eric, but I, I will. You know, there's there's a part of me which which wonders. You know i i don't I don't think we would have won World War II without the strategic bombing campaigns. Um, that's now there's a historical argument to be had there and that that would distract us but I would throw that out there and I I think I'm very mindful of the fact that our wars the wars that you fought in uh Dave um those have been wars far from our shores where we had you know tremendous overmatch and so we could afford to be remarkably constrained in our use of force and even then and I just wonder if you know we end up facing the kinds of circumstances that um that are closer to World war two which in one way the ukrainians are facing in other ways the Israelis are facing, whether a lot of those inhibitions will at the very least get relaxed
3: but that's a that's a separate thing and Eric, I've been hogging the stage, so let me add something note keep in mind that the wars that we were fighting mo- many of the wars since nineteen forty five The element of hearts and minds has been very important. Uh, And if you are trying to win hearts and minds, um, you are very conscious of the possibility of innocent loss of life. In fact, we had a sign on the command post wall staring at me in these five combat commands I had as a general officer that asked a question, will this operation take more bad guys off the street than it creates biased conduct? And if the answer to that was no, in other words, you're going to create more bad guys Uh, then you take off the street. You're supposed to go back and re-scope the operation so that the answer gets to yes. And if you can't get to yes, then you're supposed to sit under a tree until the thought passes. So again, to be sure, the context is there. And I think it's a reasonable question that you raise uh, if the country's survival was at stake, noting that, of course, every war since 1945 has been limited because there has not been a use of nuclear weapons Uh, again, since that which brought the war in the Pacific to an end.
0: I'd love to get the two of you to talk about something which intrigues me in reading the book. You know, Lord Keynes famously said that uh, practical men of affairs are uh, frequently enthralled to some defunct economist um, and Carl Becker, the progressive historian, uh, in a presidential address to the American Historical Association wrote that every man is his own historian. I'm really interested in the two of your, of your reflections on the role that history plays on in war and, and vice versa. And Dave, I have you in mind specifically, cause you mentioned, I should have mentioned it in my introduction that you wrote, um, a very good PhD dissertation on the U.S. Army in in the Vietnam War. And I saw uh, sort of, uh, you know, traces of all this in the Vietnam chapter, which I read with great interest because I think I'm one of the few people who ever had uh, Blowtorch Bob Comer as a distinguished predecessor in two jobs. He was the second uh, Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, and he also – you recount Dave how he gets sent home by General Abrams after setting up the cords program in Vietnam um, uh, and is replaced by bill colby uh, you didn't you didn't talk about his uh, onward assignment which which was that Lyndon Johnson sent him very briefly with a recess appointment to be the u s ambassador to Turkey so if you could talk a little bit about how you thought about command in both Iraq and Afghanistan because of your study of counterinsurgency in Vietnam. Of course, the role you played in, in uh, you know, getting the counterinsurgency manual written and, and uh, promulgated. Um, and Andrew, from your point of view, you know, how does the, the, the conduct of war affect how historians you know, write and think about it uh, over time? I mean, how does that change?
3: Well, that's a great question. Um, it also, of course, very quickly reminds me of Churchill's wonderful quote, that H- history will be kind to me because I intend to write it. Um, but I'm a big fan of applied history. I believe in, in the value of it. Um, and I picked the dissertation topic at, at Princeton with an intent, the idea that hopefully I would take some lessons from it uh, that would be useful if I ever got to a senior position. Uh, and it turned out that that was very, very true. In fact, it was, wasn't was only when I was in a senior position. It was also when I was the speechwriter for the Supreme Allied Commander Europe, um, the aide and assistant exec to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, for, or the uh, chief of staff of the Army for two years, the executive officer for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, in particular that job. And on occasion, I would walk in and say, you know, sir, In all of history, or certainly all post-war history, um, the chairman has had a veto, essentially. Uh, Don't underestimate the importance of your advice. Um, And then I also developed uh, a view on what the character of military advice to the president should be when it comes to the use of force and also to decisions on, again, buildups, and especially drawdowns. Um, and, and I actually shared this with President Bush uh, when he selected me uh, to be the commander of the surge in Iraq. And then also with President Obama, uh, when on very short notice, of course, he selected me to be the commander in Afghanistan. I wanted them to know what they were getting, because a year or so later, 18 months later, whatever it was, there was going to be a decision on drawdowns. And I told them that my advice will be based on the mission you have given us, uh, the facts on the ground, the objective reality, informed by an awareness of the issues with which you have to deal that I don't have to deal with, such as strain on the force, budget deficits, the opportunity cost of forces, staying in Afghanistan rather than going to the Indo-Pacific theater as an example, Um, congressional politics, national politics, alliance politics, you name it, all these issues that I said, I acknowledge these are legitimate uh, issues that you have to factor in. They'll inform my advice in some way, but at the end of the day, it's going to be driven by the facts on the ground and the mission that you have given us. This is a fairly big deal because there's a number of uh, military leaders, including my boss during the surge at one point in time, who was trying to anticipate what Congress would support. Uh, and in one case where I recommended the pace, the beginning of the drawdown of the surge forces, which by the way, was not supported by the joint chiefs. Um, they had tried to box me in with several courses of action that they had drilled us on and And I, at the end of that whole process, I remember telling them chiefs, this has been very valuable for the staff. And for me as an exercise, uh, I just want you to know that what I recommend to the president, uh, in two days is not going to be any one of these three options. Now, of course I was hugely empowered by president Bush. He had gone all in on the surge. And so this is something that you could do, but I felt compelled to do it as well, but this that notion is very important and when the president turned to my then boss um, what do you think about what dave has just recommended he said well you know i think militarily it's okay but i'm not sure that it's going to sell well on capitol hill and i remember the president rightly saying you let me worry about capitol hill i want your view on the military merits uh, of this advice that he has just provided so this is essentially of course the debate that carried on for decades between, say, the the Sam Huntington School of Civil-Military Relations, noting, of course, that he was uh, Elliot's don at Harvard and, and great mentor and PhD advisor, uh, and then the, the Janowitz School, uh, which was that you should factor all this in in the military. I, I was clearly a Huntingtonian when it came to that, and it came because of what I uh, gleaned from looking at how senior leaders had carried out their duties uh, during Vietnam in particular, but also in a number of other uh, wars as well. So I think history is hugely important. Um, I think it it helps you, it guides you, Um, it's instructive, it's not precise, Um, every context is different. Uh, But I also took from that recognition of a number of other issues, that the army in particular had come to grips with in the wake of vietnam which was of course the imperative of rigorous military readiness reporting with integrity Uh, the importance of unit replacement rather than individual replacement the importance of extraordinarily demanding training force on force the whole idea of a learning organization and the importance of fostering a culture That promotes learning um, and the after action review concept that is so important, uh, not just to our national training center rotations, but everything that we do, including uh, on the battlefield. Um, So all of these and then a recognition of the importance of doctrine um, and which is, of course, the reason that when I had the the three star tour between the three and four star tours in Iraq, um, I went to Fort Leavenworth with with the idea that we need a counterinsurgency field manual. Uh, what I thought was obvious or what have you, but in part because I'd watched it in El Salvador or I'd studied it in Vietnam, the French and the Americans. I'd been in Haiti, the chief of operations for the UN force a year in Bosnia, which in many respects was a very comprehensive civil military campaign plan, albeit not much violence, although we were doing targeting of uh, war criminals and uh, terrorists then after 9-11 as well. But all of these gave me a frame of reference that frankly, not everyone had. Um, And so we needed this for the entire army and we produced it. And then we overhauled every aspect of the preparation of our units, leaders, forces, all of our commissioned, non-commissioned war officer, professional military education uh, courses, the scenarios in the the combat training centers, on and on. Um, And then the importance finally of institutional learning. And so that it's not just enough Uh, that we're learning out in Iraq, and we fostered that uh, very explicitly. Every session that we had with the two-star division commanders and above, they had to share uh, two lessons they had learned or initiatives they were pursuing that would be relevant to the others. Uh, Again, that was not optional. It was part of this. Uh, We'd bring in the lessons learned team leaders of five or six of these different uh, organizations, all headed by full colonels, plus the counterinsurgency center, the asymmetric warfare group, all of this. And then, by the way, I would do, on my battle rhythm, one hour a month, I would do a video conference with the individual who replaced me at Fort Leavenworth so that I could report to him the issues that the Army needed to capture institutionally uh, in its doctrine, in its organizational design and structure, in the training uh, that was conducted, collective training in particular, in the leader development courses that we had. Uh, in materiel requirements, in personnel policies, in facilities, et cetera. You know the acronym that guides this well, DOTLAM PF. Um, so, uh, again, this is I, what I took from reading history and then trying to derive lessons from it. And of course, the most formative history for us during my early years um, for the first, uh, gosh, 15 or more years was reflection on Vietnam because we were basically focused on the Cold War at that point in time. Uh, and, 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 and we, had, we weren't fighting anywhere uh, until the Gulf War came along. And of course, that was one that was sent from central casting for the US Army.
2: And that was one of the reasons, in fact, why the Pentagon uh, went for applied history in the way that it did at the time of the Yom Kippur War. Um, they, sent, um, uh, they set up no fewer than 36 commissions um, that reported on various aspects of the Yom Kippur War. They sent a lot of officers out to, uh, to Israel to talk to the um, senior Israeli commanders, and they uh, and they tried to apply the lessons, and, and they did it in a way that was tremendously helpful to the United States uh, 27 um, years later in um, in the first Gulf War. And, um, and you're right, everybody is his own historian, but generals are in particular. Uh, they... Um, I, I think it's a cliché and and a wrong cliché when people say that everybody fights the um, the last war. Um, actually, um, actually, the uh, the way in which everybody looked at Yom Kippur um, showed that in fact they were considering all the time the various aspects of it where history could be applied to to fight the next one in a way of getting away from that. And when one looks at uh, when one reads David's uh, Coin manual, the uh, the 2006 coin manual. There are references to the Malayan campaign, um, the Malayan emergency of 1952 to 60. He mentions the Oman, um, the Darfur um, campaign that the Omanis and the and the British Commonwealth fought uh, successfully in the 19 late 1960s to. Mid seventies, you know, there is a there's a constant. It, strike, it strikes me. One of the things that came through quite strongly when we were writing conflict was that there is a constant um, process of Germans, uh, Germans, sorry, generals trying to. Shall I say that again? There's a constant process of generals trying to um, uh, to learn from the uh, last war and not uh, and not refight it.
0: Before I get a bit back to to Elliot, I just. Um... There are two things that your comments, both of your comments uh, have sparked. One, uh, Dave, in your recounting of uh, your discussion with the president of uh, your recommendations for the drawdown of the force, I remember that period uh, quite well because I uh, was doing my best to actually support you um, with Secretary Gates, who I think was also pretty supportive, but very interesting in, in terms of uh, the answer the president gave to the then CENTCOM commander, who was second-guessing you, um, uh, in the tank, when the decision was made uh, to launch the surge, the then CNO and the then chief of staff of the army both raised concerns uh, with the president, uh, uh, one raised the concern of whether the congress would be supportive of the surge and the american people and the other raised a question actually uh it was the cno who raised a question of whether the army rotation base would be broken uh, by you know the surge and the president responded to both of them in the tank one with the same answer you gave which he gave you which was let me worry about the American people and the Congress. That's my job. But also with regard to the question of the army's rotation base, he said, if there's one thing that could break the army, it would be us leaving Iraq with our tail between Losing war is
3: what he said, he told me. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. let yeah. me he, add one
0: other. He, he was, he was a little more colloquial actually. You know, and, and just to, just to Andrew's point, Dave, before I go mm-hmm. back to you, one of the things that worries me a bit, and I wonder what for you know your views on this is that uh, the way that General Dupuy and others really went to to school on the uh, you know nineteen seventy three war is something that I'm not sure we're doing in um, in Ukraine uh, uh, adequately. We, we you know I'm I'm not sure that we are in fact studying uh, the war in in Ukraine with the kind of care and deliberation that we did the 73 war to try and learn the lessons of future war. it's one of the things I I worry about.
3: Well, you know, first of all, it's hard to do that if you don't have boots on the ground uh, and lessons learned teams and so forth. Um, And we do have uh, individuals in uniform uh, in Kyiv, of course, uh, but we have no operational boots on the ground really outside the effort that is essentially just providing the security assistance and striving to account for it uh, and make sure it doesn't go awry. Uh, but, but back, uh, if I could, to when the process began for determining the pace of the drawdown of the surge forces in Afghanistan and how many would come out the, in the very beginning um, I was brought back from Afghanistan for that. Uh, it consisted of three meetings, which took uh, roughly a week with a weekend in there. In the very first meeting, I reminded the president and the attendees how I believed I should provide what the basis of my advice was. Again, that's the mission given and the objective facts on the ground uh, and you know, all the tasks and associated purposes and troop to task, etc., uh informed again by these other factors but driven by the facts on the ground and i then offered the opt the three options and my recommendation um and the president uh, came back and said that's not enough initially coming out and it's over too long a period of time i wanted to get all the way through two fighting seasons uh, and not begin to even the, to begin the process of drawing down until that second fighting season in other words two falls uh, into the winter of the, the, the uh, second year after we started that drawdown. Um, so he gave us uh, an option to examine. Uh, we came back in the second meeting several days later, essentially laid out in what the analysis that we'd done that showed essentially we could not accomplish the missions, achieve the, accomplish the tasks and achieve the purposes associated with them that we had been assigned given the objective facts on the ground. Uh, and then came to the third meeting um, and essentially the decision was in between the option he had asked us to evaluate and the recommendation I had made, uh, which unfortunately didn't get us quite through the second fighting season. And it was a bit more upfront than, than I felt was warranted by the conditions. But I remember at the end of that, um, as they came and they said, OK, everybody OK with this and everybody was sort of supporting. It. And I said, OK, with you know, Dave, what about you? And I said, with great respect. Let me remind you, my advice, my recommendations uh, are based on the objective facts on the ground, and there's been no change in the facts on the ground over the last week, and therefore my recommendation is unchanged. And by the way, my confirmation hearing for CIA is tomorrow or the next day, and I can assure you the first question the Republicans ask will be, what was your best professional military advice to President Obama on the decision that he has just announced? And I said, am I response will be, uh, We, I fully support the decision of the President of the United States. We'll do everything we can with the means that are provided to continue to accomplish the missions, which we had done. We had done what we were asked to do over the previous year. But um, my recommendation, or his decision, but his decision was a more aggressive uh, drawdown, formulation of the drawdown than what I recommended. Uh, which is what I then said, but when I stated that in the Situation Room, you can imagine that there was a little bit of a sensation of the oxygen going out of the room at that point in time. It was an interesting moment.
1: Okay. Can I take us in a different direction? Um, so, you know, most of the wars since forty-five, with the exception of the two Middle East wars, sixty-seven and seventy-three, which are both quite brief, uh, and perhaps. You know, the very final phase in Vietnam where we're not players, um, have been irregular, uh, unconventional kinds of wars. I think one of the things that's so stark about Russia-Ukraine is this is I mean it's a full spectrum war because there's a irregular component, a n- number of irregular components to it, but it is an all-out conventional conflict. Um and I, I wonder if I could get the two of you to talk about the future. Uh, because I think, maybe I'm just, I am just expressing my own view. I don't think we're used to thinking about uh, intense conventional war. And I I actually sometimes worry that the habits that we've gotten into from being engaged in protracted, irregular conflict um, may create habits of thought which are not particularly useful if we ever find ourselves in something much much more intense. But I was wondering if you could just, let me ask you to use that as a launching pad to talk about the nature of contemporary and indeed future
3: high-end conventional war. Well, let me start, Elliot, by just noting that I think the U.S. military leaders in particular and forces have to be prepared for a more challenging uh, array of potential missions than perhaps at any time in the post-World War II period, um, you know, all the way in the spectrum of conflict from military support to civil authorities. And that, those tasks are actually becoming a bit more demanding because of more extreme weather events, natural disasters and so forth that are more pronounced than they have been in the past, even the pandemic. The military played a very significant role uh, in the response to that um, through peacekeeping, although we don't do much of that anymore, or peace enforcement. Uh, But then certainly irregular warfare, although we are doing this more in terms of advise, assist, and enable, rightly, uh, than our forces on the front lines, whether it's Iraq, northeastern Syria, East Africa, West Africa, or a variety of other places around the world, enabled uh, in particular by the advent of this extraordinary uh, constellation fleet of drones that we can put up uh, and is so important to helping uh, our local partners um then through sort of mid-level conventional war if you will and all the way up to the prospect of of course a peer-on-peer uh, major conflict uh between the two superpowers of the world uh this is different i think from any time uh arguably since world war ii arguably again um, and it's a very challenging Uh, array of missions to be prepared for, because intellectually, you have to be prepared for all of these. That means you can't jettison the lessons we learned in Iraq and Afghanistan. They're very applicable. I'd I'd contend they're applicable actually right now uh, in Gaza, and that Gaza should be approached from a counterinsurgency perspective as a campaign design rather than a conventional military operation. But you raise Ukraine, and rightly, this is much more a traditional, conventional, um, military uh, operation war, uh, but it is in certain respects strange in that, as as uh, the great Max Boot has described, this is the war in which all quiet on the Western front meets Blade Runner. You have aspects of this that harken back to World War I, trenches and barbed wire and minefields and <clears throat> all the rest of that, and yet right on top of that, you have uh, fairly advanced drones that are digitally tied back to uh, indirect fire systems, you see uh, unmanned maritime systems that have been so effective on the Ukrainian side that they've forced the Russians to actually withdraw the bulk of the Black Sea Fleet from the important port of Sevastopol for the first time in many centuries, um, et cetera, et cetera. And yes, we're not ready in terms of a military industrial base to even support Ukraine adequately, much less actually carry this out ourselves. So, You're exactly right. I think there are huge lessons from this about the need for much greater numbers of certain types of munitions um, if you end up in this kind of extended warfare that is of this nature. And this highlights, again, the need for leaders who comprehend all of this um, and can be prepared, have big ideas about how We would go about each of these types of campaigns. And again, that's a very, very tall order. Because in the past, we've been able to focus on one or the other. We focused on the Cold War. It was big, big armies. Even the Gulf War was that kind of war, if you will. No civilians on the battlefield. Open desert, tank on tank. Again, sent from central casting for a U.S. army that trains in the Mojave Desert. No urban areas to speak of. Yeah, they had to liberate Kuwait City, but the big fighting was out on the desert floor, vastly different, of course, from the irregular wars uh, that we have fought. which often have uh, included very substantial urban operations, especially Iraq, uh, and especially during the surge when we had to clear and hold and rebuild Ramadi, Fallujah, parts of Baghdad, Mosul, nearly 2 million people, Bakuba, et cetera. And we see some of that, certainly, uh, to a considerable degree, uh, as the Israelis are seeking To destroy Hamas, dismantle the political wing, get their hostages back, and then they had to need a few other big ideas about who's going to administer Gaza and how do you keep Hamas from reconstituting. And hearts and minds matter. If you don't want to be creating more bad guys, then you take off the streets uh, in the conduct of operations. But again, I think not only does the country face the most the greatest number of threats and challenges since the end of World War II. It also faces the most complex array of challenges since World War II, and that means that leaders have to have a real range uh, of expertise and knowledge uh, and, and again, awareness of doctrine and all the rest of this in a way that was not as necessary, certainly, say, um, again, since the Gulf War, Uh, And until we really rebalanced to Asia, recognizing the emergence of the challenges in the Indo-Pacific region.
2: I think that's right. I think um, uh, for an entire generation, really, from 1945 until the fall of the Berlin Wall, which was 35 years, um, we uh, had to prepare for a mass tank onslaught across the North German plains. And that's what uh, concentrated the mines. But actually, of course, we... The real uh, killing that was going on in in real life as opposed to that because that never happened was um, was taking place in uh, in insurgencies the uh, four hundred million ak forty sevens that were um, that were produced in that period um, is a testament to that so whilst you had to prepare for one kind of warfare in fact, what you were doing for most of the time in most of the parts of the world was fighting a completely different Kind of war altogether, and and what um, the rise of China, the close uh, cooperation between China, Russia, and Iran, and the um, multiplicity of uh, future threats that can come from all sorts of new technologies tells us is that we 've got to be ready to uh, essentially to do both to um, to uh, deal with a conventional mass onslaught but also um, deal with uh, the um, destabilization of societies right across the, the planet. So this is going to just cost more money. This is something that it's very important that people appreciate that the uh, we have been living in a sort of fool's paradise, having such low um, defence spending. I'm speaking from the point of view, of course, of a Britain which where we are um, um, sort of teetering around two percent of GDP on defence. That is nothing like enough. And uh, and and by the way, we're more than an awful lot of uh, European countries. And I think we've got to wake up now and recognize that the rest of Europe has to go up to at least an American level of, um, of defense, especially, of course, if some incoming um, uh, government in America were to cut off funding to Ukraine. You know, I, th-
1: I think that's completely right, Andrew. And I, I would also parenthetically say that you know the, I mean, the Brits at least are, as you say, uh, at 3% or close to it. But, but in terms of what they actually get for that 3% of GDP, it's really way below what you should be able to get. Uh, I mean, it, it's, you know, like 125 tanks or something like that, or, or you know, t- two aircraft carriers that I think can fly eight F-35s because uh, have, we haven't been able to afford that. There, there's a question of efficiency. There's a, But there's a broader point, too, and uh, this... I'll, I'll step a little bit gingerly around my friend Dave Petraeus. I I am not sure that I believe in omnicompetent generals and staffs. You know, I think about your predecessor in, or one of your predecessors, rather, in uh, Afghanistan, uh, Dave, who was removed by the Secretary of Defense, Eric's old boss, not because he was a bad guy in any way, shape, or form. He was a very admirable guy, just wasn't the right general for a counterinsurgency. Um, and and you know there are parallels in history. I mean Andrew, you know, you and I can talk about uh, General Joffre or uh, Field Marshal Kitchener uh, in World War One. Are these really the right guys to fight a large-scale industrial war when their you know their their experience, a very successful experience, was in colonial warfare. And it would not be the first time in history that you have militaries that are quite skilled at uh, ins- irregular warfare, counterinsurgency, going up against opponents who may have rather little combat experience, but actually have prepared for it better. I mean, I think of the, the French and uh, Prussian armies in uh, 1870, where you know the French have a lot more combat experience just because they've all been in Algeria, but they really weren't ready for large-scale conventional conflict. That that seems to me to be a, a concern that we should reflect on in uh, for the years ahead.
3: I have, actually. Um, and the challenge with what you laid out uh, is that you'd have sort of one set of generals for the big war and another set of generals for the regular war and another set of generals even for civil support to military authorities and a, and a handful of other discrete tasks in between but you get one chairman of the joint chiefs at a time and you get one combatant commander at a time. Uh, And the truth is that in any given uh, geographic area overseen by a combatant commander, uh, especially some of them, you'll have wars of all different types. Um, I'd contend that's certainly the case. Once again, in central command right now Uh, is arguably the case about Southern command, although that is always an economy of force effort. I get it. Um, It, it, It's the case in AFRICOM uh, right now as well. And I think you, therefore, you have to have uh, these, the combatant commanders in particular, arguably the the service chiefs as well, because they're making uh, force structure and a lot of other decisions on the Dotlin PF, of course. Um, And they have to understand, I think, uh, the nature of different um, campaigns up and down the spectrum of conflict. And so that part of the process of selecting these individuals should be to ensure that they do get it uh, in that regard. I don't think that's impossible, actually.
1: You know, I actually, Eric, I'd like you to chime in because I I mean, you've dealt with a lot of generals and admirals and um, I mean, I will con- I understand what you're saying, Dave, but I will confess that I'm skeptical.
3: I mean, well, I, but we don't always pick these, the individuals because of, the merits of their operational knowledge, expertise, experience, and capabilities. Um, sometimes they're picked because they're going to be loyal um, and they're not going to rock the boat. Um, you know, they're not going to be an HR McMaster, who as I used to describe, admire never leave something left unsaid, which is what you want.
1: Or, or as, as happens in a lot of wars of so this, um, and Andrew, you've actually written about this, you know, at the beginning of a war, you say we have these wonderful people in place, but they are just not the right ones. And you get a lot of people who get fired. Um, and not not the reason why we fire people today, which is for you know, peccadillos of one kind or another, but because they're just not right. I mean, for example, you know, it's very interesting. even just we, you know, we've been talking mainly here about land warfare. It's very interesting that the United States Navy. Uh, there is a real purge. There's a purge of submarine commanders, but there's a purge at the very top. You do, you had uh, Admiral Betty Stark, who's the chief of naval operations, the right guy for peacetime planning, uh, and actually does very useful service in World War II. But he's got to be replaced by Admiral Ernest J. King, who is much more of the kind of warfighter, that you need. And I, you know, for me, this is actually one of the great tasks of civilian leadership because you cannot rely on the system to, to do this on its own. It, it just won't, at least my view, er, Eric, you really should can, pitch So any- Can I
2: just butt, butt in there and uh, and add on your, to continue your analogy for a bit, the second world war analogy, of course, uh, general Marshall was uh, chosen with 16 other generals above him in the, uh, right. in the army list. And he, in the course of the Second World War, sacked 64 generals. And so, uh, you know, you did have a, a culture of this um, when you needed it in, uh, in the Second World War.
0: Dave, you wanted to say something? I mean, Elliot's trying well, to you know, suck say, me Elliot, into this argument.
3: Elliot wrote a great book about this. Um, but again, I actually think it is possible, but this, you have to bend the system to it. Look, I mean, there is a reason why Secretary Gates had me sent back to be the president of a one-star board, the only board I ever sat on in my entire life. And I did it during the surge in Iraq, uh, despite, and I was the president, even though I was not the senior four-star on the board. I was the junior four-star in the Army. Um, so, and it was to make sure that we, we got the right people for the future, several of whom were not as appreciated by the system because they were a bit outspoken um, and, again, never left something unsaid, uh, as the saying goes. But that's who we should value. And the challenge, Elliot, is to do that during peacetime, as well as when you're desperate during wartime. Easier said than done. Yes.
0: Yeah, it's... it's interesting because uh, I was going to talk about Marshall relieving a number of commanders in the midst of war, but Andrew, you know, took, took that point (laughs) from me. And I was going to mention the special uh, general officer board that promoted H.R. McMaster and Sean McFarland, future other, you know, uh, people who richly deserved to be, in my view, rewarded for their um, performance actually on the battlefield, as opposed to the criteria that That we actually use. Both of
3: those were thinkers too, and there are several others. So they were they were reflective, they were thoughtful, they were students of history, and they had proven themselves uh, on the battlefield. Look at why. How did we end up with the junior three star in the entire army uh, as the commander uh, of the coalition joint task force in Iraq instead of retaining uh, General Scott Wallace, who had overseeing the ground operation uh, was, I thought, a, a very effective commander, but of course, had antagonized Secretary Rumsfeld uh, with a comment during the fight to Baghdad uh, that this right. wasn't exactly the war that we envisioned when we saw the uh, emergence of many more of the irregular forces of Saddam fedayeen and so forth. I thought that was an objective and honest and forthright statement and should, should not have been something that led to him being in the penalty box for a few years.
0: And it was more a comment on the bad intelligence, honestly, than anything
3: else. Yeah, and we were adapting um, to it again. You know, just yeah. you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy, all that stuff.
0: I want to be mindful of people's time because this podcast is uh, spanning the globe from uh, from California to to London, and uh, we're actually a, a bit uh, over time. I, I I guess I would finish my reflections on the conversation by saying that. Uh, Andrew uh, rightly pointed to the study of the Yom Kippur War uh, by the U.S. Army after 1973 and the role it played in developing operational concepts uh, that led to things like um, uh airland battle, assault breaker, uh, FOFA, the follow-on forces attack that literally helped us win the Cold War. Um, Big five Day's systems role. for the Army. Yeah. Um, and Dave's role uh, in, you know, writing the uh, the field manual, it gave us essentially the um, the operational concepts that uh, he was then able to put into play in the field uh, during the surge, uh, along with Ray Odierno, um, who was the Corps commander, the late Ray Odierno, another great uh, another great general. Um, and I guess my reflection is that I hope that this book will contribute to the kind of discussion we've just had over the last hour on a broader national level, because I I think we're in search of those kinds of operational concepts uh, for the kind of complex challenges that General Petraeus has described that we face, but I don't think we've found it yet. So uh, I hope uh, that this conversation and certainly the book will will help stimulate that. But I really want to thank General Petraeus and Andrew Roberts, who've uh, Stimulated Hollis, uh, great thought for, for joining us on Shield of the Republic to, today, and I hope we can have you both back in the future.
1: Yeah, and I, I want to uh, I'll second uh, those thanks. I, I found myself uh, thinking about um, a seminar that I attended in the late 1970s, uh, which was you know, about the time, more or less, that I met a, a young captain, David Petraeus. And it was a seminar on which was really raised the question whether you know we're basically done with war. Apparently not. Uh, and this is a this is a very useful book. I completely agree with it. Eric said. And grateful to both of you for making Andrew your second appearance on uh, Shield of the Republic. Dave your first, but for both of you, I hope it won't be your last.
2: Thank you very much indeed.
3: I hope so too. So much.